0: Yeah, we're going to continue, or rather start, um, our Advent series today. And so, when we talk about Advent, the word means coming. And so, it's this idea, like Nick said, that we're anticipating the arrival of Jesus. So, it's almost as though we're reenacting what people went through at the time that Jesus came. So, we don't actually celebrate on December 25th, Christmas, because anyone really thinks Jesus was born on that day, what it is is that there's a kind of a natural holiday, if you will, around that time where it's called the winter solstice, where the days are at their absolute shortest. You guys have probably noticed it's getting darker and darker outside. Right around it moves around a little bit every year, but right around December 25th is when you have the shortest day of the year with the most darkness. And so the church, for um, since the since the 300s, there's been this. Really rich tradition with the church writ large of celebrating the coming of Christ at a time when things had gotten very dark. So think about the fact that um, before Jesus shows up on the picture, there had been about 400 years of no real substantial word from the Lord to his people in terms of things that made its way into the pages of our scriptures. And so during this darkness, all of a sudden light penetrates, light comes in. And so as we celebrate this time as a church, we're kind of joining in that stream of church history. I'm going to encourage you guys as individuals and families to do the same. It can be really tempting around this time of year for Christmas to become all about presents. I don't know about what your story was growing up, but I don't know for me, that, that was the expectation, right? Like when Christmas came around, it was all about as a kid, like presents, getting um, and giving gifts. And that kind of stole the show. And so we almost have to fight, uh, make extra effort to fight against that. And so just a few challenges for you and a few encouragements. Number one, try to, during this season, make an effort to talk about Jesus more than presents. Um, that sounds like a really simple thing, but it can be uh, tempting for it to go the other way. And so make an effort towards that. Um, there's lots of resources you can do as a family to kind of help put the focus of the Christmas season on Jesus and keep it off of some of those other things. And so one of the things our family does, and I know a lot of families in this church have been doing, is there's a book series. It's historical fiction. It's called Jotham's Journey. And Jotham's Journey is actually just the first of about five books that is historical fiction that follows the life of these uh, young children and what's going on with them around the time of Jesus. And all of the books kind of culminate in the birth of Jesus. But it helps people kind of climb into the story and our kids get excited about it, reading it every night um, during the Advent season leading up to Christmas and helps us keep that focus where it's supposed to be. Another thing that I would say is just at some point when you do your gather with your friends or family or whoever and you celebrate the Christmas day, um, take a minute and read Luke chapter 2, at least that story. Of Christ's birth, just to make sure everyone is focusing um, on the thing that we are truly celebrating during this season. So in our series, we're going to be asking this question, our sermon series, why did Jesus come, right? We all know the story of Christmas is about God leaving his throne in heaven and coming, taking on flesh to dwell with us in the person of Jesus. And so why did he do that? Why did Jesus come? And there's actually several statements throughout the Gospels, where Jesus gives a very direct, explicit explanation of why he came. We're going to see statements like in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus says, I came to call sinners to repentance. We're going to look at, and this isn't all today, this is throughout the series, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's all these statements Jesus makes of this is why I came, or the Son of Man came to do this. And one of those statements we're going to look at this morning is that he came to seek and save the lost. And we do get that, as you heard in the Scripture reading, from the story of Zacchaeus. And so just to give you a little bit of context for when this story took place, At this time, Jesus had done most of his earthly ministry. This was near the end of his life, right? Um, He would be crucified very soon after, uh, not long after this took place. And so he'd been, most of his time on earth had been spent in Galilee as far as his adult ministry in kind of the northern part of Israel. Now he's heading south to Jerusalem and he stops or rather goes through the city of Jericho. And by now, Jesus had a pretty significant reputation for himself. Um, He was known as someone who had performed a lot of miracles and had a lot of notoriety because of that. He was known as someone who had stood up to a lot of the corruption that people had seen and recognized among the religious leaders of the day. Um, You could say that he was a mover and shaker of his time, and so there was a lot of Kind of hoopla, a lot of reputation about him. So he comes into town and everyone is gathered around to see his entrance. So look at chapter 19, verse 1. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I do think it's important for us to understand who this guy was because it plays a big part in the story. It says he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. So here's what that would have meant as far as the way Jewish people would have seen Zacchaeus. Number one, they would have seen him as a traitor because at the time the Jews were living under Roman occupation, dominion, and rule. And they didn't like that, right? No, no one would like that, right? Being ruled and governed by this other foreign power, right? So they resented. Rome, And what they resented probably even more was anyone among themselves who kind of sided with Rome. They hated the idea of paying taxes and tributes to this foreign government. And so when one among their own brethren kind of enlisted himself as part of the Roman regime who was then taxing the people, he would have been seen as somewhat of a traitor to his country for siding with Rome. Not only that, but he was profiting off of the backs of the people. So most of the people in that day would have seen him as like skimming off the top. It's like, hey, look, we're over here doing an honest man's work, trying to provide for ourselves. You are not. You were just Rome's puppet who's skimming it off the top and kind of stealing our money to pad your own pockets. And in doing so, because he was a higher up in that um, tax regime, he became rich. And so he was seen as someone who was a traitor to his country, who was godless, who had simply chosen his own personal wealth over loyalty to his country and godliness unto the Lord. That's how Zacchaeus would have been seen by his peers. You might think of it like when you think of a a politician in our day and age that goes into Washington and maybe has humble means and isn't really wealthy but then four eight years later comes out and they're filthy rich. And you're just like, what is that about, right? Something is off here. That's a similar sentiment to what they would have had towards Zacchaeus, but even worse because of the godliness and the nationality issues surrounding that. Um, and so the story goes on. That's who Zacchaeus was. That's how he's introduced as a rich tax collector. And in verse 3 it says he was seeking to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And so if you know this story about Zacchaeus climbing up in the tree, you may have heard it so many times that you haven't really allowed the ridiculousness of the scene that's painted to sink in. This is like a grown man, right? This is a, this is a dignitary, okay? Okay. Um, I, I remember three or four years ago at the 4th of July, July Parade, um, we were there on, uh, I guess it's John King or whatever street it is that they they go up on the 4th of July Parade. We're watching and I didn't know he was going to be there, but Ted Cruz, you know, Texas senator rolls through and Ted was like, oh wow, that's, that's crazy. There's, there's Ted Cruz right there. So I want you to imagine someone who's seen as kind of a dignitary type role like Ted Cruz, right? And imagine that there's a Rockwell celebration and we're all at Harry Myers Park. Let's say there's a concert. Maybe it's like, Taylor Swift or someone, someone real famous is doing a concert at- Harry Myers Park, okay, and she's out there. If you've been to Harry Myers, you're on kind of the south side of the pond. They've got the amphitheater area roped off. She's getting set up. She's doing a sound check, and imagine that everyone's there. We're all kind of watching. We're trying to see, hey, can I see Taylor? Is that her right there, right? You're all looking. You're trying to get a view. You're fighting, then all of a sudden, you look up, and Ted Cruz has climbed a tree, and he's in the tree doing this, like wanting to see Taylor, right? That would look completely ridiculous. You would be like, Hey man, like we're all excited, but don't make it weird, right? I mean, you're, you're a grown man like in a suit and tie climbing a tree. That, that's, that's how this would have looked. It would have looked really odd, really awkward, and really weird. Very undignified. But that's the pursuit we see of Zacchaeus trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. That he is sacrificing his dignity and embracing kind of a, a childlike humility In order to pursue Jesus. And I had not planned to say this, but after watching those baptisms, I thought about this. Like, it's a little bit like that with baptism. Like, if you've been in church a while, this is like, you know, very routine, very, um, you're very familiar with this process, with this sacrament. But if you'd never seen this before, like if you'd never been to a worship service, you didn't know anything about church and the things of God, and you walked in, And you saw this group of people looking at the stage. And then you see a grown man wearing a towel, walking off into the back that had just been in this pool of water. Like, that would look a little bit undignified, right? I mean, it's a little little awkward, a little weird in and of itself. But that's often what it means for us to pursue a relationship with Jesus. Is that we lay aside our pride. We lay aside our, hold our shoulders back and our head up high dignity and do things and embrace kind of a childlike mentality in our pursuit of knowing Jesus. And that's what we see in Zacchaeus. Verse 5, it says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. For he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So you see this response of the people. Luke really wants us to see this, that when Jesus approached this guy, Zacchaeus, this known sinner, traitor, tax collector, Jesus goes and befriends him. And all the crowd is just shocked. And, I, you know, we don't know what they were thinking, but I can but wonder if someone were thinking, man, what a sellout. This guy has been the one that's supposed to stand up to some of the corruption we see in our day. And here he is befriending this guy because of his money and influence with Rome. At any rate, they're shocked and they can't believe their eyes. That of all the people Jesus could chose to be with and stay with while he was in Jericho, he goes to this guy, Zacchaeus. And the story continues in verse 8. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And this is where we get our key text this morning, our key verse. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And I think what you have there is Jesus talking to Zacchaeus, but then also addressing the crowd who he was very well were shocked that Jesus would interact with and befriend this guy named Zacchaeus. And it's, it almost gives you the same tone of when Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. Where he's looking out at all these people who probably thought themselves to be pretty righteous and shocked that he would hang out with Zacchaeus saying, Look, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to seek and save people like Zacchaeus. So what can we learn from this? We're going to look at three things we learned from this story today. Number one, we must be aware of our need for Jesus. We must be aware of our need for Jesus. One of the things we see so plainly in this is Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus had no pretense of his own spiritual pride or worthiness to be befriended by Jesus, all the people that were grumbling you got to imagine there were some of them among them who they didn 't necessarily say see themselves as like unworthy of Jesus, but worthy of Jesus, maybe hoping that he would come and stay at their house because of their how devout they were, how spiritual they were, how involved they were, what kind of a reputation they had, and instead they 're shocked to see him see this hang out with this guy who had none of those accolades, who was seen as a scoundrel and a thief. But Zacchaeus did not approach Jesus as though he might be worthy of Jesus' attention, but knowing that he wasn't, just hoping to catch a glimpse. And friends, we would do well to remember that outside of the work of Christ in our lives, we were a lot like Zacchaeus, that had Christ not entered the picture, come and died for us, adopted us, to be God's sons and daughters and made us holy, apart from Christ's sacrificial work for us, we stand like Zacchaeus, unworthy and unable to approach God. And that's a lot of the, if we really kind of individualize the movements and the drama of Advent, that's kind of what it's like that before Jesus came, we were in darkness. In fact, the scriptures say that as Gentiles, those who were not Jews, we were strangers to the covenants. Foreigners to the promises God had given Israel without God and without hope in the world. So we do well to remember that the darkness was not just the darkness in general, but it was the darkness of our hearts that we were stuck and lost in had Jesus not interceded on our behalf. We must be aware of our need for Jesus. Second observation this morning, we must be aware of others' need for Jesus. One of the most striking things about this story is that Zacchaeus had any interest at all in this rabbi that was coming through town. Right? Everyone would have looked at Zacchaeus and thought, he wants nothing to do with that. He's made his choice. He has taken his path, and he has chosen his own wealth and his own comfort and his own sin over the things of God. Zacchaeus would have been written off as someone who wouldn't have any interest in the next meeting at the synagogue or the next thing that was happening regarding some rabbi. No one would have thought this guy would be interested in anything surrounding godliness. There's a commentator, Philip Ryken, who picked up on this and said it this way, The little man's curiosity is a reminder that some of the people who are secretly interested in Jesus our people we would never expect to be interested in Jesus at all. No one thought Zacchaeus had much interest in spiritual things, but in fact, he wanted to know more about Jesus. And so this story just goes to show us that God's arm is never too short to save. It's interesting the way Luke places this story in his gospel because just a chapter before this is, this is Luke 19, just a chapter before in chapter 18 Luke tells us the story of the rich young ruler. If you don't know that story, let's summarize it real quick. This rich young ruler, that's, that's all we know about him, walks up to Jesus, says, Hey, look, I've kept all the commandments. What must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus says, If you would do well, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then it says that the man walked away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, It would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And his disciples are shocked by this. Like, well, a camel passing through the eye of a needle, that's, that's impossible. And they look at Jesus and say, well, then who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And it's almost as though To demonstrate the reality that the impossible can happen because of God, Luke tells the story of Zacchaeus. The guy that seemed like he was too far gone. The guy that seemed like he would have had no interest in the things of God. The guy that was so rich it would be easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for that guy to get into heaven. Guess what? That guy inherits the kingdom. Not because of his work, or effort, but because of God's rich and lavish grace and mercy bestowed upon him. And so as we reflect on that, I want you to think for just a minute, because it's easy to talk about that in generalities, right, and kind of an ethereal sense of, yeah, we know there's people out there that look like they're interested in Jesus, but deep down maybe they really are. Let's make it real. Think about someone in your own life that you have just written off in terms of the things of God. That you have just decided, that person, no, they, they don't want to hear about this. And they've made it very clear with the way they live, the way they talk, the things they do, that they have no real interest in the things of God. Maybe that's a Zacchaeus. Maybe that's a person that on the outside, looks like they have no interest in the things of God, but, but in the inside, actually, is very interested and very curious about you, maybe about your church, and maybe about the things of God. So I want to encourage you to think about that person and then think, how might God want to use me to show his glory in that person's life? Maybe God would want to use me to invite that person to come and see Jesus, to learn who he is and see how much love God has for that person. Maybe God would use you to explain that to them. Thirdly, Jesus pursues his sheep. This is a story of not so much is a little bit about Zacchaeus pursuing Jesus in the sense that he wants to see him. He's going to great lengths to find out who he is. But ultimately, the shocking thing in this story is not what Zacchaeus did, but what Jesus did to pursue Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus would not have dared. He would not have had the audacity to invite Jesus into his house. And friends, when we're aware of our own unworthiness, we must realize that left to ourselves and our own feeble attempts at righteousness, we would have no ability or no right to be friends with Jesus. And yet the shocking thing of the gospel is that Jesus in our unrighteousness and in our sin wants to be friends with us. I want you to imagine for a moment that you had a, a son who's about five years old. And because, you had been kind of negligent as a father and hadn't really raised him the way you should. He was a Yankees fan um, and uh, really, really big Yankees fan. Let's just say he had like Aaron Judge was like his thing, right? He was a big Aaron Judge fan. He had posters all over his walls. He's like, man, Aaron Judge is the greatest. He's the best, whatever. Um, yeah, just this, this super big fan of Aaron Judge. And then Your son found out that the Yankees were going to be in town playing the Rangers, and he got super excited. And being a little naive as a five-year-old, he thought, man, maybe we'll get to see Aaron Judge. And as a dad, you're like, yeah, we could go to the game. Maybe you're right. Maybe we will see him. And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's invite him over. And you know, being a, a good dad, you're like, okay, well, I wanna I wanna encourage this. It's kind of cute, it's kind of cool. And like, well, maybe you should write him a letter. He's like, yeah, let's write him a letter. So he gets out a pencil or a crayon writing a piece of paper, and he's like, Dear Mr., should I say Mr. Judge? Mr. Aaron, how'd I say this? Dear Mr. Judge. And he begins to warmly invite Aaron Judge over to his house for dinner. He's like, my mom, man, she makes the best pizza you can pick. We always have Pizza night on Fridays, and you can choose Pizza Hut or Domino's. We'll let you pick. Um, we'll order whatever kind of pizza you want. We'll go in the backyard. Uh, we'll play some some baseball in the backyard. I'll have some friends over. Um, I'll even sleep on the top bunk so you can have the bottom so it's a little wider. You can stay the night with us. We know you need somewhere to stay. He writes this big, long letter and signs it and then, you know, wants to send it to Aaron Judge. Like, it would be cute, but at the end of the day, it would also be kind of silly, right? It would also be somewhat laughable because you would never believe that someone of that esteem, prominence, and stature would, like, actually read a letter like that and respond to it. Now, let's get real crazy with this, and let's just imagine for a second that the script was flipped on this. Let's imagine your son was excited about it. you haven't it. You haven't written the letter or anything like that. But you go to check the mail that day, and you open it. and Your son's sitting there, and it's from Aaron Judge. And it's like, hey, somehow, unbeknownst to you, this guy knows who you are. He knows who your son is. And he writes this letter, explaining the same things. Hey, I just want to come while we're there and hang out with you guys. We're going to be there two days early um, to warm up. So we've got a couple days. I'd like to just hang out, get to know you guys, and be friends with your son. Um, I heard he's got a bunk bed. Maybe he could stay on the top and I could stay on the bottom, right? And he just, you're reading this letter. What are you thinking? You're thinking like, all right, who's the jokester, right? Like, which one of my friends thought this would be funny to get my son's hopes up like this, right? This is, this is not a good joke. You wouldn't believe it to be true. It would be so unthinkable, so great, you couldn't imagine that something like that could actually happen. But friends, can I tell you that's the story of the gospel? That the God of heaven who made the seas in the earth and all that is in it from his position of stature and prominence and esteem that we would think naturally completely unapproachable, wants to be friends with you. With you. He wants to be your friend. Romans 5, 7 says it this way. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus knew that we we would not have the boldness and audacity to think we could just be friends with God on that kind of a personal, intimate level. And yet he came and pursued us from heaven. He came and sought us to make us his friends. There's a book you've probably heard us quote before at Crosspoint called "Gentle and Lowly," talking about the approachability and humility of Christ. And it says this: No one in human history has ever been as approachable as Jesus Christ. No prerequisites. No hoops to jump through. Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him. And his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move towards that sin and suffering and not away from it. We'd be remiss not to consider Zacchaeus' response when given this kind of unexpected attention and friendship from the Lord It says in verse 8 that Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And we see in the story of Zacchaeus the reality that following Jesus does cost something. That the grace and friendship he extends to us is free. But following him and receiving it will cost us our lives. Think about that amount of money real quick, right? Imagine if like all of a sudden everything you had was just cut in half and then you defrauded a whole bunch of people and from the half that was left you had to restore that fourfold. You wouldn't have a lot left, most likely. This was not a small sacrifice for him. The same commentator says this about it. He says, The changes that Zacchaeus made must have cost him a fortune. But then that is what it takes to pass through the eye of a needle. But then we see Jesus' response to his repentance and Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house since he also was the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This picture we see is a picture of a good shepherd, seeing a sheep, a beloved sheep that has gone far astray, laying everything aside and at great cost to himself going to rescue the beloved sheep. Friends, if you're believing in Jesus or if you would believe in Jesus today, you are that sheep that Jesus came to rescue and befriend you and I. We're gonna end the the sermon time a little differently today. I'm gonna ask you. We're gonna move into Lord's Supper time, but go ahead and take out the the bread and open the juice part and kind of get that ready. Um, I'm gonna read a a poem. Actually, this poem was written in the 1800s and was later uh, made into a song. Pretty cool story behind that if you want to look it up later, but. It's a song about the the parable of the lost sheep and just kind of dramatizes the story of Jesus going after the sheep that was lost. And so as we read this, I want you to think about it in terms of the Lord's Supper of which we're about to partake, of the Lord Jesus coming and at great cost to himself, at the cost of his body being broken and his blood being spilt, pursuing and going after us as his lost sheep. There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. But one was out on the hills, away, far off from the gates of gold, away on the mountains, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine, are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, This of mine has wandered away from me. And although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through when he found his sheep that was lost. Out in the desert he heard its cry, sick and helpless and ready to die, sick and helpless and ready to die. Lord, where are those blood drops all the way, that mark on the mountain's track? They were shed for the one who had gone astray, ere the shepherd could bring him back. Lord, why are thy hands so rent and torn? They are pierced tonight by many a thorn. They are pierced tonight by many a thorn. And all through the mountains, thunder ribbon. And up from the rocky steep, there arose a glad cry to the gates of heaven, Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Friends, the shocking truth of the gospel it is not that we get to rejoice over Jesus, but that he rejoices over us. His body broken, taking eat. His blood spilled, taking drink.